Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from the Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction with it. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. And integral to this is mapping out ecosystems and looking for the friction and tension points that exist within. Well, that's what exactly this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses helping design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. In this first episode, I'm going to be speaking with James Deersley of the Digital Marketing Bureau, as well as his latest business, PropTech Consult, with business partner and longtime PropTech VC, Eddie Holmes. Unsurprisingly, we're going to be talking about PropTech. It first arrived on the scene as a popular term around 2012-2013, and it's since spawning a whole host of businesses, some with the hope of disrupting real estate through technology, and others just seeing how some things can be improved. James is really well informed, has a lot to say, so let's get on with the show. Well, as I said, the, um, this evening's uh, episode is around PropTech, and from our point of view, who else to speak to than James? On top of his existing business, James tirelessly meets, greets, critiques the players and the fakers of the industry on what appears to be a daily basis. Every <laughs> Sunday, his marketing firm, the Digital Marketing Bureau, puts out a roundup of the week's activities in the industry and famously busts the most colourful trousers. That, green. They've got to be green. They've got to be green. Got to be green. Well, that much like PropTech itself is there to almost question the norm of who owns, who runs, who has something to say about the real estate industry, one of the oldest games out there. And so that no other place to start than really asks, you know, what drew you to PropTech in the first place? And if you could give a little bit of a description about what you see as PropTech. Christ. Um well, first of all, thanks for, for getting me on. Uh, genuinely, it's, it's a privilege to come on. Um, so how did I get into it? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a property man at heart. And I think genuinely, it doesn't matter which sort of sector you're in. If you've been in the property sector beforehand, you don't leave it. Um, I think property is part of your sort of the DNA. And um, I started the early sort of um, career of mine within Foxton's. And I was there for four years. And then I then went into um, the overseas real estate development side, uh, and that too, you know, it was equally fascinating in, in different component parts. But it was in it was in both of those respective companies that I worked with that I saw the transition of how technology was impacting uh, sales and marketing. And uh, it was often negatively perceived, in my view, that technology was going to hinder sales progress. And actually, I persevered with everything, and I enjoyed it. And as a consequence of that. When I started up a marketing company, for me, uh, even though that was meant to be agnostic of, of, um, of industry, I wanted to keep my fingers in the pie of how property worked and the people and the movers and the shakers within it. And so I just started writing um, about how technology can impact the property sector. And what happened is two years ago, it absolutely boomed in terms of interest within the property sector as to how technology can impact it. And I think there was a, a sort of a, a, an initial start of how people could perceive technology actually not as a hindrance, but actually as a help. Um, and it didn't get in the way of things. Um, and ever since then, for the last two years, PropTech has, has absolutely um, just morphed into something it was sort of never four years ago when I started doing it. And, uh, and it's a fascinating space to be in. Um, but defining it, it's bloody difficult. You know, it's... Uh, I think I've seen... Two and a half, three years ago, PropTech was a was a thing. It became something. Um, I've heard you know reports in the last sort of six or seven months where people are starting saying, "Well, I've got PropTech fatigue. Um, there's too much of it. There's too much of a wave." And I think now we're becoming we, we've reached a sector where 
it has become um, an umbrella term for a lot of different things. Uh, you know, it really covers things like smart cities, smart homes, IoT. Um, there's subsidiaries of prop tech around build tech within the construction technology sector, um, Cretech around the commercial real estate side, ResiTech. They're all subsidiaries now of prop tech, which for me shows a sort of a maturation in, in the sector. And actually, it, it's probably due. I mean, it's, it's, it's a time now where we're starting to see the maturation. We're starting to see the industries wake up now and say, Christ, there's something happening. Uh, and you know what? Ultimately, we still need prop tech as a generic term because we've still got swathes of the traditional industries and the people on the ground doing the day-to-day running of property who haven't got a clue what's going on. So there needs to be an umbrella term there. But I think sort of higher up the food chain within the sort of the decision makers of these businesses, they're starting to realise there is a, actually there's a vertical within prop tech for them which suits them and they can start to focus. So it's exciting. Mm, thank you. There's, um, there's something I've looked at uh, PropTech and kind of critiqued over my, over my time and something that gets spoken about a lot is at the moment you know some a critic would say well it's just digitizing the past and a little bit about what you've said there is that the industry is getting bigger and I've looked at you know my, my personal view that PropTech kind of exists where there's the intersection of technology and the real estate market and we have one side of looking at the sort of the digitizing the next side we're starting to look at sort of the new values the new ways of looking at things do mm. you feel that is where we're starting to have this change on PropTech and its maturity is that it, it's actually starting to prove different levels of values rather than looking at uh, speed and efficiency that sometimes technology uh, was there to serve Christ, that's, a, that's, why, that's why I wanted to come on in, Josh. Crikey, that's a good question. Um, I think it, it's more driven by the fact that there is now a need for the digitisation. Um, if you think that we run, you know, we are part of the largest asset class in the entire world, and a commercial sector would say it's run by Excel, for example. Um, so there is not necessarily a need to speed things up. There's a need to professionalise what is the largest asset class in the world. Well, this is where people like uh, VTS come into the market, okay. who today hired two new people from one of the major firms from, from CBRE. They're, they are pulling sort of key younger players into their into their markets and almost they are proving value. I think one of the great things I saw about them and this idea that a CEO could effectively go on their customised app for their entire leasing and management portfolio and understand straight away where they are in real time. And that's something that property has really lagged over a period because it's because it's fixed. It takes a while to record and all of a sudden we're getting this real-time analysis of a space. And I think that is one of the interesting factors as we go forward as to who are the players kind of leading the market, informing kind of that, you know, people. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, I think if you, I mean, bringing VTS in as a, as a, uh, as a discussion point, I, I had um, lunch with them today, in fact, and, you know, they're saying the biggest competition for them is Excel. You know, they, there's, not, mm. there's not other players out there. It, it's actually convincing still the traditionalists within the industry that they have to digitize their assets. They have to get it into a platform that they can read at a heartbeat or a mouse click everything within a portfolio because ultimately when you're dealing with asset managers who aren't communicating together within big um, companies and they can't talk about the deals going on at the time, there's a massive problem. Mm. This brings up an interesting question that you might find uh, questioning at the same time, but what you're kind of, or where I feel that is leading towards is this idea of, is the failure of adoption of technologies like this by an asset manager um, who is 
mindful that they've got an Excel spreadsheet, that it's customized to their values, that without them, that spreadsheet becomes redundant. Therefore, if you make that spreadsheet part of a platform, does that asset manager, does that employee become redundant? And something that you know, I was asked earlier is like, why, perhaps why aren't people adopting more technologies? You know, why, why is this market not looking at this great opportunity to take you know, to take a leap forward. And sometimes it, it, it's a protectionism kind of thing. And, that, you know, the beautiful thing about technology is its transparency at the same time. So, you know, do you feel that that is as much a market that's affecting the culture of the people around the real estate market, that there is a, a certain fear in themselves that they might be, you know, doing themselves out of a job by looking at something a little bit more progressive? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, without a doubt. But I don't think we're there yet. I don't. I don't think we have that um, fear factor necessarily. I think there is still a misunderstanding about. Let's take VTS in this case. I still don't think there is an understanding wholeheartedly what they can deliver to an asset manager. I still think there is a learning process. I still think there's an educative side. Um, I mean, like with any. Um, technological adoption, there is a period of education, there's a period of learning before you hit the um, the sort of the real early innovators who are starting to take the product and run with it. So yes, I think there needs to be, I think there needs to be a question asked within the sector that there has to be a level of fear about this, um, uh, this aspect of automating of job roles. Um, and I find very interesting parallels between um, where we are today and where we are within the Victorian uh, revolution and the industrial revolution that we saw at the time where people feared mechanization. I think we're at a similar place now and I think if you look at um, various texts on this they say one of the core fundamental differences between now and back in the sort of the late 1700s early 1800s was the fact that we are automating they were mechanizing and what you were doing then is you were replacing the human physical labor with machines which would did the job better the point was at the time is it, it actually gave human beings an ability to upskill and become better at more complex jobs. The fear at the minute is that um, we are not in that space now. We are into automating slightly more complex jobs. And I think there is a fear that we are in a slightly different period of time where the question mark is where does that human level of skill go to after this? So mechanization is different to automation. And that, for me, I think there's a real philosophical discussion, which is probably far deeper than we can have on a podcast and probably requires um, a beer in a local pub and literally <laughs> sit down and digest it genuinely, because I think there is a real philosophical angle to this, which is where I don't think we as an industry are there yet. But I think higher level managers, CEOs, founders, and so forth of the bigger operations need to question that and say, well, hang on a minute. Where are we going to be in the next 10, 20 years? Where's our business going to be in the next 10 or 20 years? Because, and I've, I used this in a, in a speech I gave before Christmas, and it seems to have struck a chord within the industry, which was the Bill Gates quote of, we're overestimating what's going to happen in two years, we're underestimating what's going to happen in 10. And it's actually based on a, on a, on a, um, on a, on a law, uh, which is called Amara's Law, which is all about the exponential growth of technology. And the point is that as organisations, as large organisations, we have to question that 10-year point which is where the likes of artificial intelligence is going to come in. Why? Because, you know, take the smart city side. We're going to have data oceans, as being described. We can't analyse that stuff quick enough. Mm. We don't have enough human bodies with a skill set to analyse all of that data coming in. Therefore, where are we situated? Where are we placed with all of this? And I think we owe it to ourselves as organisations and companies to question that, 
to look at it and start thinking now in preparation for 10 years' time and saying, where's our workforce going to be? Where are we going to be as a company? And we have to start thinking and putting action plans in place today for the technology of tomorrow. Great. I, a great question I was asked um, uh, when doing a talk at the RIC, RICS was a guy asked me, you know, who's going to be responsible for retraining the people that perhaps are affected by automation, and I just thought that was, a, you know, that does bring this idea of legacy and responsibility to, right. you know, to a lot of the big leaders. Uh, but but don't market. you think that there is? I mean, this is one of the things that I'm most passionate about, which is why I do a lot of the speaking stuff that I do. Which is, I mean, generally when I when I sort of look at a, um, a speech and I finish it, and I always come back to the point of saying we owe it to ourselves to understand what is happening. You know, where is that responsibility? Is it at the level of the corporations? You know, there is a question mark there for me mm. because ultimately I actually think the people in the big organisations, the big boards of directors of the big companies are not necessarily aware of what's happening. I think there is a, there is a gender bias, I think, that we have at mm. the top of large um, organisations. I think there is an age bias in the sense of they've built their own businesses, they've built their own personal responsibilities and brands and positions off the back of what they know and have known for the last 30 years. Are they prepared to make the big decisions for the next 10 years? I think there's a struggle there, a conscious struggle, and therefore, are they actually gonna deploy the strategies that the, the general public, the general workers, are going to be able to work, sort of looking forward and saying, well, actually, it's up to me to do it. So I, I think there is a, um, there's a duty of care organizations have to put in place, and I'm worried that they're not gonna do it. But I, therefore, I think the general population have to start to realise the changes. And there is an, sort of an aspect of responsibility to themselves to protect themselves for the future. You know, I look at, I've got two young boys. And one of the things that I'm sort of particularly passionate is saying, well, hang on a minute. I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. And perhaps there's an area of a parenting side where I have to start saying, well, maybe we've got to start learning about robots and how they're built and all this sort of stuff to prepare them for what's coming around the corner. So I, I, it's, a, it's a bloody difficult question. Well, there's, what you're bringing up there are kind of two things. There's a, there's a need and that that need is split. So does a CEO, and we we're getting to sort of a bigger question on the stock market responsibility, which is almost an ox, oxymoron in its own right, that you know, does a stock market PLC um, CEO need to think 10 years ahead? Not necessarily. The, the shelf life of many CEOs tends to be around three years. They, you know, they have a long-term vision, but there's short-term responsibility. But that, you know, that brings up a different level of uh, ethics, and I think ethics is a, you know, again, we're going into a, a huge topic here, but, you know, who, who rules the rulers when the rulers are in a free market? And it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger question. God, let's not go down this line. <laughs> oh, my God, we never stop. But, but I tell you what, I mean, talking about yeah. the ethics in, in terms of, let's sort of break down to the, yeah. sort of the conscious city and the smart city side of things. One of the things which, um, and, and it was something I read recently, and it's really resonated for me, which is as a society, we're, up, we, you know, sort of, we're trying to upscale in our technology. We're trying to think that we want a smart city, not a dumb city, which I think was quite a, a, a clever way of putting it. And, and I always remember the statistic, um, and I want to say it was Santa Monica or somewhere like that on the, on the east coast of America, where still 75% of all um, traffic light problems are phoned into a central call centre because they have no way of monitoring where the traffic problems are, are coming. You know, that is an example of a dumb city. But if we're going to sort of upscale to smart cities, there's one fundamental problem, which is we as a city have a duty of care to the citizens within that city. You know, I know you're very passionate about the whole the well-being side. Mm. We're thinking about 10 years in the future. I'm thinking about my kids in all of this. 
But there is an aspect of are we leaving portions of society behind mm. in the development of our smart cities, which mm. is the people who maybe can't um, afford the technological innovations that we are about to see. There's a massive problem around the age demographic of the pensioners, which is how are they going to benefit from these sorts of technological innovations in cities. And I think that's another... Oh, you're, 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 you're jumping into my boat here. I think that there's a lot to be said um, about local areas and redevelopment of areas. Um, taking away visual signifiers and visual markers, you start to, you know, for those who may be on the onsets of dementia, for example, mm -hmm. losing these visual uh, sort of marks to remember is a negative factor. And then along that, I mean... I found a, a, a great but sad statistic, and I think great by way of it brought such an awareness. But um, And it's something in a piece I think you, you might be referencing uh, beforehand, was that dementia is the highest social care cost in the UK, twice that of uh, cancer-related uh, diseases and issues. Uh, yet it's quite a white elephant in the room. And so when we start talking about the sort of the smart city and we have a prop tech industry and we have a build industry and we have an economy that needs all of those to move forward, they are, you know, the asset-based industry is still actually the majority of our economy. We do need to build. We have inefficient old structures that need rebuilding. Mm. But one of the bigger questions is how do we start catering for uh, children's early learning development when it comes in a city that might be noisy or loud, when it might be a lack of being able to remember where the key markers, where, where they identified themselves as growing up and being. It's very easy to, to you know, to watch. You know, you watch the, the Keith Richards documentary that's on uh, iPlayer and he talks so visually about what it was to grow up in Dartford. And to, to grow... In Dartford, what a place to grow up. I know. And it was, you know, he said the Luftwaffe forgot to... To Dartford and turn back around. They'd, they'd had enough. They dropped all their bombs there. And he, uh, yeah. and it, that, that that visual memory. And during that period when they rebuilt, that they grew with that, and they, they grew with change coming forward. But now, always, you know, is there a fear of a generation having things taken away from them? Are, are people losing the markers? Is there this real lack of control? So whilst people like you and me who might be, you know, better suited to handling a chaotic city that is forever changing, that is forever fast. We do have to think about those, for example, who may be suffering on the autism spectrum uh, from autism spectrum disorder, for those who do have the onset mm -hmm. of dementia, for those whose anxiety levels are so high. I mean, take an autistic person to Oxford Street or to navigate areas of the city of London, and you know, it's, it's borderline panic attack situation in a question therefore comes in how do we look at the technologies that we put in to understand our city and then make the decisions on who we want um, our cities to be for and it's a it, it's a, it's a massive you know it's it's the point of questioning about conscious cities but uh, mm. you know I'm, I'm conscious that i want us to stay sort of more down sort of the the, the prop tech route because that I understand is but, where i mean you, but the thing just to conclude on yeah. that i mean you could go down a massive rabbit warren of, of philosophical discussion mm. about the duty of care side what cities will actually be like in 30 odd years i mean let's be brutally honest like, there's a statistic saying 90 percent of all population will be living within an urban area mm. um, by 2030 you know things like that they are massive discussions um, and ones that I, I, I feel passionately need to be had yeah. at every level, top level and bottom level. We need to have those discussions. And I think what's being led is that decisions are being made on data. And it's about gathering sure. to, to, to this, these levels of data uh, for key players and decision makers to start making uh, making key decisions about what is a short-term strategy and what's a long-term. But I want to kind of ask that, you know, one of the key places that we are gathering lots of data and where, you know, everyone says they're in the data industry kind of thing is um, 
is in this uh, it is in prop tech yeah, and I kind of want to go back to asking you know I've actually worked in a, uh, a prop tech startup and you know one of the things I remember hearing uh, you know picking up from investors or you know questions about it so how early are we in this in this industry in this cycle where are we on on the need mm. and I guess is there anything that you might be noticing about because you, you, you've covered a whole wide range of companies that are intersecting, speeding up, digitizing, democratizing a lot of opportunities to people. I think one of the really interesting things about PropTech is, as you mentioned before, the sort of the gender and almost, I'm, I'm going to argue and say the racial issues that a lot, certainly the, the real estate industry has had. Yet a lot of the sort of successful um, younger sort of startup CEO uh, founders in this industry tend to be from a very diverse and broad demographic. So, you know, is there anything you're noticing from some of these players that are perhaps a little bit too early? You're seeing people that have jumped too far ahead or you're noticing that actually we're, we're riding a particular wave at the moment that's, that's, that is actually causing a fundamental shift in how people are sort of interacting with that, the real estate market. Okay, so let, let's sort of take the first, the first of that, which is the how early are we? Mm. Um, if I'm honest, I don't think we've even got started. Um, and that's probably quite a statement to make, actually, bearing in mind, you know, we've seen this, and, and it is, there is a crest of a wave. But with, with any technological adoption, there is the so-called hype cycle, which is various different technologies will get a massive... Um, sort of uptake of interest, and I think as a um, uh, as a sector, I think we are probably getting to the very top of the hype cycle before a sort of a slump in terms of interest. But then, what will happen? It will start to gather momentum again. But I think if you break it down, I think within each and every component vertical of prop tech, I think there is their own hype cycles. So um, I've been talking a lot that this year I'm expecting to see an awful lot made around the build technology side, mm. the construction technology side. Why? Because I think it's least talked about, but it's arguably actually one of the biggest parts of prop tech. Because you look at the next five or ten years with the government's initiatives on house building, look at the the, uh, the white paper that recently came out from the government, they are all about making more houses and making them more affordable. So you've got not only the build tech sector, mm. but you've also got the crossover between prop tech and fintech mm. in terms of how do we make it more affordable and easier to access both funds and also, you know, you've mentioned mortgages at the start, and, and how important is that to me? Um, it may not be important to everybody, but I think anybody who is anybody trying to get onto the property market, I think they need easier access to cash and a more transparent way to get into cash. So going back a step there, there's PropTech, and I've said BuildTech really for this year, I think is a massive cent, uh, massive area, and I think anything to do with the conveyancing base um, and the mortgage base, I think, needs fundamentally looking at for the long-term health of property. Um, one of the most frustrating areas of buying a property in the resi sector is the conveyancing side. And a third of all properties that fall through as a result um, of a deal is because of conveyancing and delays within it. That's a massive problem. Mm. It's stopping the sort of social mobility is probably a, a too much of a word, but it's stopping, stopping the progress of house purchasing going through is just paperwork. Is that a lack of awareness of a risk or a problem that's sort of identified at a later period of time, or is that something that is just pure inefficiency as people are sort of running through the mill? I think it's a bit of both, and I think it goes down into the sense of the fear factor again about change. And I think um, certainly within the sort of the conveyancing world, a lot of it is still paper-based. We, we have centralised systems. We have 
you know, we need to run searches and we need to repeat those searches time and time and time again. And each time we have to run a search, we have to go to our centralised agency to get access to paperwork, which is archaic in, in Notion. Every time we have to get, run title deeds of companies, they are run from centralised systems. There is a massive bottleneck. But aren't we starting to see a little bit of a change in that with companies like uh, Datcha, for example, who are bringing things like the land registry uh, data and portfolio into a digitized platform and being able to sort of lay that visually with a more map-like interface so you can start to be aware of title lines and freehold lines and bring this awareness so you on a speed. I mean, is that where you're going? We need more of that. We're getting there. And I think in certain subsectors of PropTech, I think we are. I mean, Datcher are a classic example from the commercial side. I think from the building side, companies like Land Insight, who are really digitizing the planning process, I think are making builders' lives a lot easier. And I think you'll find real progress with those guys. I think the ResiTech conveyancing side, there's a lot of better platforms now where they're, they're giving access to agents and buyers a more transparent process in terms of not having to ring up the lawyer and say, have you run my searches yet? You know, speaking to the agent, has this been done yet? It's all on a transparent basis. So I think there's a lot of great innovation coming but I think there's still an awful lot more to be done. And that's why I mean where the hype cycle, I think there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of noise, and I think we're about to hit that peak of noise before it drops off, and we start to see true innovation becoming more of, of sort of normal life. And, and you know, average Joe public on the street will suddenly start to go, Christ, it's actually starting to work a little bit better. Um, but I don't. I think we've got a long way to go. So because we're quite early and there's a lot of people talking about this, I want to ask you a little bit more in line with where's that... Where's that great barrier that's stopping it? And is it as simple as we just need more success stories? Or is there a wider issue with regards to legislation that you've noticed? I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a good question. Um, I think there's a there's a multitude of interests. I think there are of reasons. I think part of it is the fear factor. I think there's a lot of um, uh, uh, misunderstanding about what it will do, and I think there's a, probably a resistance to change. I think, um, especially from a sort of a conveyancing angle, I think there's a lot of reasons not to do something rather than work with something. And it's one of the uh, one of my biggest um, sort of bits of advice with people, which is don't resist technology. Work with it to work out mm. what works and what doesn't work. It's not all perfect. Um, so I think there's that. I think there's also, um, you mentioned success stories. I think there's a, there's a, a lot um, of resistance based on a lot of this is proof of concept stuff. I don't think we're quite there with some of it. Uh, and I think we need a lot more collaborative relationships between the larger corporates and the younger startups. And I think there, they just need help. Everybody needs a lot of help to understand what is worth the time spent uh, and what isn't? Because again, there's a lot of hot air. There's a lot of companies being built. In my view, this is probably sounds a little bit harsh, but there is a lot of mentalities at the minute within young startups, which is they're building for investment. They're not building a business. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and I think, <laughs> but but you know, we say oh yeah, but from a corporate, they know that too, and they're saying, well, hang on a minute, is it really worth my time in doing this, or are they just trying to get their next seed raise? Seed raise, and, and I think that is another concern. Um, I had a conversation this morning just saying, you know, that is a company which sounds as if they're, they're simply building it to get the next bit of income coming in to pay the wages. They're not actually looking at something sustainable, which is going to be of, for the good of the industry moving forward. And I think that's a, that's a worry. So does that, you know, does that beg the question that do we need to have more of these corporates starting to mentor and guide 
perhaps the younger sort of startups. I know people like Pi Labs, for example, you know, the, the guys, some of the guys behind that are industry focused people. They are sort of mentor and guide. Do we need to look at more representation from a, a wider level of the, the real estate industry? Yeah, it? totally. A hundred percent. And I think we should probably take a look at what the retail sectors have done. Um, I mean, there's three ways that the, the the real estate world can go, which is either they acquire companies, which is a massive mm. message sent to their sort of their audience base, which is a risk because you're going to alienate your staff, which is saying, well, actually, hang on a minute, we need to acquire companies that aren't what we are doing. So there's, a, I think, there's a massive message sent there, which is a risk. I think there's a there's the investment angle where we're just investing in different companies because they recognise they can't build it in-house they haven't got the entrepreneurs to to really build from within and I think that's probably quite a nice halfway house Um, or you look at building out the accelerating the incubator um, scheme which for me I actually think there's quite a call for that and I think there should be more of that within our sector look at what John Lewis have done with their J Labs approach look at what Tesco have done with their Tesco Labs approach where they're all looking at sort of quasi-investing in firms within a healthy environment, which is they're sort of getting the tag of being quite innovative. At the same time, they're looking at ideas which could benefit the business um, quite intrinsically. And I think that's quite a nice way of, of doing it, which isn't sort of large on risk, but it's quite good on innovation. And it's not, um, not going to piss too many people off. Excuse my French. <laughs> the, um, you were referencing before about uh, build tech. I mean, so... One of the problems that we hear about sort of in, in smart cities or in most industries, even with the government itself, there is a big problem of the silo culture. If you were to marry up right now uh, PropTech with another sort of industry, and it doesn't necessarily need to be another tech or perhaps it might be the most sensible, is there, do you see a more important sort of collaboration than, than any other? If you were to say, you know what, these two really need to start talking a lot more. We need to bring these two sectors of the industry uh, in order to actually answer more questions. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say fintech, which is what I, I referenced earlier. I think there's a, there is a natural symbiosis between what is happening in the technology in the real estate space with the technology from in the banking sector. I think there is a, a natural symbiosis there, which I think will only benefit the property sector moving forward. Um, it doesn't matter if it's on house building or um, commercial or, or property. I think there is a, a, a natural symbiosis there, and I think what we've probably got to be a little bit careful of is that it doesn't become more of a sort of a parasitic relationship where obviously one doesn't benefit from the other. Um, because I think we've got so much to gain from having more transparent processes in terms of payment clearing. Um, you look at the uh, the UK marketplace being an island, we have a lot of foreign investment coming in, but we don't have brilliant transactional facilities for international investment. So for me, PropTech and FinTech are a natural partnership, uh, and I think it should be endorsed further. I think one we're getting into something that I, I genuinely feel is that the you know as we talk about the bubble of PropTech, probably there's a problem that it sits in a bubble and that it needs to uh, you know ingratiate itself more with other industries and sometimes be more aware of some of the larger problems at play to look at better levels of adoption. So I you know a big focus for me and an awareness over the you know, over the past couple of years we've really started to learn about the problems of mental health. In, in cities and start to think, you know what, this is where we need to start. Like, what is a smart city? was a great question that was posed to me. It's like, well, mm. it's smart, it's great, everyone runs around really quickly. Why? And, you know, for me, the answer is that 
you design a smart city, you improve efficiency of transport, for example, so that you can improve general mental well-being. So, I, if, I, can I can I pick up on that? I think that there is an interesting thing for me in terms of a conscious city, which is we've got to think we think of cities a lot as buildings and people, and I think we forget one component part, which is the cars within it and the transport facilities within it. And I think one of the other interesting things for me about the, the design of our cities moving forward is actually outside of the technology real estate sector. And it's the, it's the car, the automotive sector, in the sense of you know, the shared economy, the gig economy mixed with the driverless car is going to have probably one of the most significant impacts on our city design for generations. The fact, I mean, it was an, it was an MIT bit of research where they said that uh, we're only using our cars 5% of the time, the rest of the time they're parked up. And the very nature that if we start to combine the likes of um, car ownership, which we don't need anymore, why do we need to own a car, which we're not using for 95% of the time that we own it, why don't we just share cars? Now, why I find that quite interesting, and it links in with the well-being bit, which is that part of the stress that we have in our, in our cities is transport. Mm. If we can get rid of 90% of our car parking spaces, as this MIT research did, that is an awful lot of a city that can be rebuilt. I mean, it, just walk out from the offices where we're at now doing the podcast, and all you'll see is cars are everywhere, parked or otherwise. The, the, the mayor of Los Angeles is quite keen on this and has put some money behind, sorry, I'm aware, put money behind a sort of smart car autonomous vehicle system for LA because... They haven't know, got car parking problems, have they? Or car well, problems? Surely well, not in LA. The, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they look to their sort of four lanes of traffic per side yeah. and it's people looking for car parking spaces. It's people driving around. And here's our point of, could we line that down to two all of a sudden? we've opened up land. Now, what we do with that land becomes an economic question. It becomes a question of, you know, do we need more physical space for buildings? Or can we have more public realm? Exactly. It's, and that's the point. That's where the well-being is sitting. I mean, I, I read a stat recently that we, um, we waste, in fact, I'll put it to you, how many days of our lives do you think we waste looking for car parking spaces? Oh, thankfully, I don't drive. I ride my bicycle everywhere, so I don't have this yeah, problem. But uh, I, I, I'm going to go with... How many days of our entire lives? Our entire lives. Uh, I'm going to go with... I'm going to just go with 150. I don't not know bad, 106. Oh, not bad. So we, but we waste 106 days of our lives just looking for a bloody car parking space. So you know, there is a well-being angle. I mean, Christ, you know, that's... Uh, I, I personally think that there needs to be... If we're going to get rid of 90% of our car parks... That's a massive shift. And it's not going to happen overnight. There's no way it's going to happen overnight. So have you, uh, have you heard of a company called Appy? Appy Parking? No. They're, um, uh, an old friend started this up. He's currently in Barcelona at the big media, I think it's the big media com, whatever it's called. And yeah. he's constantly winning these uh, these awards. And all, all he very simply did was bring together a whole series of data sets and information about car parking facilities in London, Brilliant. all from the local authorities. And, you know, he had a bit of a war, uh, you say, you know, from the local authorities say, oh, no, you can't use our data. They said, why not? I'm taking you directly to a customer who is looking for a parking space that will pay before they even get there. You know, you go onto your phone, you see where you are, you see where you want to go, you see yellow line, double yellow line, parking till six. It's all digitized, all really ah, clear and clean. Yeah, like and it, it starts to bring the efficiency. But 
with that, you get, you know, you get your big data questions. You know, you mix, start mixing that with the things like your Ubers and everything. You start to get an understanding of the mapping of what what's the mobility of a city. You start making the questions of do we need to take a road out here? Do we need to add a road here? We're actually noticing a lot of congestion here. Uh, you know, for me, on when I look at sort of the conscious city side, when I see cars and certainly where I live, I start to ask these questions. How can my streets be smarter in their awareness of congestion? So, you know, where I live and I've tried to complain, I've done this and that, that brings up civic debt. You know, how do I actually report a problem with my local area? That there is an inefficient right-hand turn from, from sort of a, on a cross junction and there's car beeping the whole time. But, you know, for me, I'm, I'm 31 years old. I'm fully healthy as to the best of my knowledge. It's not really a problem for me. It's annoying, but I'm, I'm not a child that's, you know, that's trying to sleep at night. I'm, I'm not a person that might be suffering from yeah. from, from high levels of uh, uh, depression. And to, to hear the car parking beat might go more forward. So I think that's a really interesting side when we start to look at companies like Appy and the information that we're getting from them and how we look at the sort of smart cities mobility, mixing with the Uber, but then looking at where are we getting congestion? You know, is the mobility one side and do we need to start looking at, you know, the rest of you know, the other senses of yeah. a city? But, but if there's one thing, and I think in, in all of our discussions so far, and I think it's, it's almost a, a great point to sort of work with, which is that this is all coming down to one point. It's all about data. Everything is about data. And there's two levels here, which is there's the data collection side, which interests me greatly, because we've got, you know, in order to run smart cities, we have to have sensors. Sensors emit data. We are just going to become, to bring the term back again, we have data oceans coming, not just from our buildings, from our people, from the stuff that we are wearing, from the cars that we are driving, from the buildings that we are in. We just have data. So one aspect for anybody interested in prop tech, they have to understand where this data is coming from. The second bit is the interpretation and the analysis of the data, which is where currently we haven't got the skill set. So there is a massive skill shortage and skill gap which will be filled by technological innovations in the future which will make our cities smarter, not, well, depends on which way we go, smarter, not dumber, mm. which is if we've got this data which could make us better, don't we have a responsibility to use it? Well, you know my answer on that. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. Yeah, no, it's. I, I think there's looking at... Um, Existing data, reactionary data, or you know, st almost statistical information about wh what is happening, where and why. Then we start to look at sort of experiential data. Uh, you know, that that's something that I'm, you know, as I've probably said throughout this this chat. You know, something very keen on get, getting a greater understanding. It's what you know, it's what it's what my own business does. You know, when we work there, um, when you start to combine those, you start to look at well, what do we actually want from a city? How do, how do we start to make these movements and these these changes mm -hmm. and these these directions to go? In? And I think that's that's the kind of market, and that's where I was kind of just slowly starting to ask, like, you know, is there anyone in the prop tech market who's going, hmm, experience where? You know, just just experience of being in that space is that going to change how someone's going to going to buy? It? And we, you know, the industry to always look at um, is retail because retail deals with the unknown because it deals with somebody random walking into your store. It deals with something quite chaotic, and you know, there's always one rule of retail which is kind of like 
the customer is always right. Where are they saying? And you know, we look at what uh, WeWork have done in the office market of just turned the entire office market into a hotel scene. Yep. You know, it's all about the hospitality. You don't even think that you're in an office space. I mean, what's amazing about them is, you know, they, they've, they're renting these big spaces. They're changing the perception about what it is to walk into that building and know that actually, when I'm part of this this tribe, I've got everything from my insurance sorted. It knows, it knows what I need that day, and you know, yeah, I might pay more, but I know that I can scale, I can, I can retract, I can get smaller if I need. And I think they're they're a very interesting player when we start to look at who's who's shedding the information on experience. Uh, but I tell you, but if I may, I want to counter that a little bit because look, I'm I'm an advocate of technology. I always have been, and I always will be. And I look at how it will enhance what I do now. But I always tend to try to look five to ten years in the future, not, not today. Because things like that experience side of, of technology, yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of people trying to do this sort of stuff. But you bring up the example of, of retail and, and WeWork. Look at two examples. So Gap recently did a very high-level study. And it was actually in part using some quite technological solutions. They were using iBeacons to track people's movements within the store. But the conclusions for them, and it was all about male shoppers, right? And I don't know about you, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a classic male shopper. And one, what they realised very early on was that males, when they're shopping, will walk six feet into a Gap store. And they'll either walk immediately out or they'll sort of loiter and they won't do anything. And what they realised when they combined the quantitative technological data of iBeacon analysis with the qualitative feedback data, they realised that men feared one thing. They feared picking things up to try them on, and they feared trying to understand what clothes went with what. So all Gap did was they moved mannequins into the centre of the store where men could see it when they walked six feet into it, which made a massive difference because people could, because the men could actually understand what clothes went with what. And the other thing, the most simple thing they did, and this is what I mean by technological solutions do not have to be comprehensive. They can be fundamentally just about user behaviour. Was they realised that men didn't want to pick up clothes because they were too frightened about how they were folded. <laughs> and so, but all they did genuinely was, you know how, you know when uh, you yeah. undo something and you've got to unwrap them all and they all fall out and you think, oh Christ, and you've got little bits of paper in there and you've got to put them all back. All they did was they just did a single fold on a t-shirt. And if you walk into a Gap store, you know, you'll see a lot of them are either on hangers or they're on a single fold. And it made a mark, like hundreds of percent difference in stores in terms of profit based on a single fold t-shirt. The other example, WeWork arguably one of the most progressive companies. They just had another three billion pounds of investment just in the last couple of days. Yep. But one of the things that they did was that they purchased a design agency who did all their fit outs. So, you know, much like when McDonald's started, you have a McDonald's here burger, it's a McDonald's burger over there, same thing. Same with WeWork, the design fit is the same. But one of the fascinating things from their design team was not only can they use sensors to understand the movements of people and all this fancy tech stuff, but one of their fundamental um, bits of analysis they did was on physically looking at people in meeting rooms. So they walked past these large meeting rooms, and all they did, they just walked past and they noted how many people were in them at any one time. And as a consequence of that, they realised, hang on a minute, we've got meeting rooms for 12 people, and on average, four people are in them at a time. Yeah. That wasn't any fancy-pants technological solution. It was good, old-school, qualitative, observational data analysis. So... I'm a massive technological advocate, but at the same time, we cannot get 
shrouded with this incredible immense amount of cool stuff that's going on and forget the core fundamentals of business, which ultimately at the end of the day it's people, personalities, qualitative nature of analysis of business decisions, you've got to combine the two. Don't just use one. I like it. Well, I'm going to say thank you very much, James. I think that's a great point to end the podcast for this evening. Pleasure. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, and we'll speak soon. Lovely. Thanks. A massive thank you to James for his time. Some great stuff in there and for being the first on the pod. And that's the kind of guy that James is. He's there to help get things started. So to follow up with James and his many, many ventures and ideas, do keep up with him via his Twitter handle, which is at James Deersley, the spelling of which will be in the info of this podcast. So thanks for listening. We're on iTunes, so if you do have the time, please leave us a review and make sure you're signed up to the newsletter and follow all our social media accounts. Best way to get in touch with us is sending an email to podcast at thecentriclab.com and feel free to say hi to us via Twitter, which is at thecentriclab. All the best. Bye.